Okay, as I mentioned, we're going to do something different today, and it's not only different. What we've been doing is different than anything we've ever done before. So um, we'll, we'll see. We'll see how this goes. Uh, we've been we're in the midst of an expository series going through Leviticus, and the last time we were together, we talked about the sacrificial system and the, the idea in Romans 12:1, where Paul says, "Offer your bodies as living sacrifices." That's what we ended up on. Now. In preparation for that lesson, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out what Romans 12.1 is all about. Because it's a transition verse in, in Romans where after the first 11 chapters he says, Therefore, and then, he, and then that sets up everything that follows after that. So to prepare for that, I studied Romans 12.1 and everything that came after it, and then I studied Romans 12.1 and everything that came before it. And then I went, kept going back and forth, back and forth through Romans. And in the process of doing that, of trying to get a better understanding of this, I felt like some things for me fell into place by studying it that way. And I shared it with Allison one morning, uh, very briefly, and she was very encouraged by that. Uh, someone had said something, a preacher had said something to Allison, it, intended as a blessing, but it ended up being a curse. And he said, before he taught a series on Romans, he said, if you get Romans, God gets you. And unfortunately, at the end of the class, Allison didn't get Romans, so she's been <laughs> laboring under the burden of wondering if God's gotten her or not. So I think she feels a little better about that right now. So, uh, But Romans is... I think, for a lot of Christians, a hard book to understand, and I would say that the the commentaries have done a pretty good job of making it uh, more obscure and, and botching things up, heavily influenced by the Protestant Reformation going back to Martin Luther, who basically hijacked the Book of Romans from how it was understood before that time. This is the basis of Luther's famous doctrine of justification by faith alone. And Luther, in his introduction to the Bible, said, listen, really, Romans is the most important book in the entire Bible. If you, if you understand that and nothing else, you're in pretty good shape, which is after we look, after we look at Romans, we'll, we can take a, a review of that. Also, John Calvin, who's the father of Reformation, the, uh, of the uh, Reformed theology, uh, his many of the points of his tulip theology come out of that, which uh, things like total depravity and uh, unconditional election, the idea that we're completely depraved and that God arbitrarily picks who is going to be saved and who's, who's lost. And since we're depraved and can't do anything good, there's nothing we can do about that. And also as a consequence of that, since there's nothing good in us, that we can't lose our salvation because it's a matter of unconditional election anyway. So the whole... The whole uh, system is based, to a large degree, on some things that Calvin was pulling out of Romans. I think a lot of these things are taken out of out of context. The other thing about Romans is, in in the evangelical world, and, and even going into uh, parts of the Christian world that, that that are that are not strictly speaking Protestant, the most popular evangelical tracts are based on something called the Romans Road. And I don't know if you're familiar with that, maybe, maybe by another name. There are slightly different versions of the Romans Road, but it's basically, it's a plan of taking an unbeliever to the point of salvation by 
basically chaining through, picking a few verses in Romans as an outline for this. So basically, Romans 3, no one is righteous, we're all sinners. Romans 6, the wages of sin are death. And this may be familiar to to, uh, some of us here. Romans 5, 8, Christ died for us while we're still sinners. And then they go from there to Romans 10, 9, 10, and Romans uh, 10, 13, where it says, if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we'll be saved. And it also says, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Then Romans 8, 1, there's no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ. So the idea is that we're now, we're now home free. We don't have anything to worry about. No one can condemn us. And uh, Romans 8, 38, 39, in some version of this, will say, nothing can separate us from the love of God. So, and, and then the conclusion that is often drawn from this is if nothing can separate us from the, law, from the love of God, neither can sin. And so no matter what we do, we can't lose our salvation. So this is a common presentation of the gospel the Romans wrote. And I believe these are cherry-picked out of Romans because I noticed that there are some things in Romans that don't manage to make it on the Romans. There's some detours around certain chapters, okay? Uh, Like, for example, Romans 6, where it talks about how we're buried with Christ in baptism, never shows up on the Romans road, ironically enough. And how about how we need to die to sin? And when we, there's a death that takes place on our part, not just the death of Jesus. So it talks about repentance. Or Romans 11, where Paul talks about You know, branches were broken off of the tree and you were grafted in. Lesson for us. Be careful, consider the kindness and sternness of God that if you don't remain in Christ, you could be broken off too. Now there goes once saved, always saved, eternal, unconditional eternal security. Uh, The other thing, in Romans, there's only one place in Romans that I know of, uh, Romans 14, 17, where it mentions the kingdom of God at all. And, of course, the the message of Jesus was the kingdom of God. Uh, That was the the basic basic message that Jesus proclaimed, that John the Baptist proclaimed, and and Paul, when he went to Rome himself in Acts 28, that's what he was proclaiming, the message of the kingdom of God. So that's not mentioned in the Romans road whatsoever. Uh, presentation. Also, uh, David Berceau is working on a New Testament commentary series, and he finished the first half of Matthew, and some people may think it's strange, but rather than doing the second half of Matthew like you would expect, he jumped onto Romans because so many people were asking him to explain Romans. So, so he, he jumped onto Romans, and he's in the midst of working on, on that right now because there's so many questions that people have about how do you understand Romans. And so I want to talk a bit about uh, uh, Romans and how I want to take a look at it and why why I, so I want to take a break from our Leviticus series because this is, this, uh, I'm excited about this. I've been, I've been studying it. Uh, I think I put some things together that have been helpful to me. They're helpful to Allison. And so I want to present it, but I'm going to do it instead of taking... 13 lessons to go through Romans or 16 lessons. We're going to do the entire book of Romans in one lesson, okay? Why in one lesson? I'll explain that 
uh, in, in a minute. Very important to read in context. This is, I think this is where everybody gets in trouble with Romans, where they take a verse here, a verse there, and they're taking it completely out of context. I want to make sure we're reading it in context. What was Paul trying to communicate, not what am I trying to come up with? Okay, so start with what's, what's he thinking, what's he trying to communicate, what does he mean? All right? Uh, many years ago, I read a book called How to Read a Book. It had a profound impact on me. It's an ongoing impact. I, recently, I taught a class on basically how to, how, to, how to teach the Bible, how to become a teacher. And I talk quite a bit about things I learned from how to read a book. And, and one of the things that it talks about, the importance of, if you're reading any great work uh, of literature, and it includes the Bible, that's hard to understand, which Romans... Romans is, Paul says, some of Paul's writings are hard to understand, so don't, don't, feel, uh, 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 don't feel alone if you struggle with this. It said you need to ask questions of the text. And unfortunately, if, 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 if David Adams is talking, I don't understand something, I can say, David, could you please explain what you mean? Unfortunately, if I'm reading a letter for someone who's been dead for about 2,000 years, I can't do that. I have to ask the questions, and then I have to go into the text and dig out the answers. So that sounds like hard work, because it is. Uh, so the questions, some basic questions. Who is the intended audience that the author is writing to? Who's the primary intended audience? Why is the author writing this? What's the main theme of his work? What are the supporting themes? How... Does he use reason and evidence to get to to get to prove his basic thesis, the main theme of the work? Also, what are the implications that the author sees, and if he convinces us, what does he say then? How does that affect the rest of the world uh, if what he's saying is true? And then the other thing is, what are key terms that are used by the writer, and what does he mean when he uses those terms? So these are some basic things in looking at anything that's, that's difficult, anything that's hard to understand, uh, that we, we want to, to use. Uh, and why do I want to tackle this in one lesson? Well, I believe Paul is making one point over the first 11 chapters and he doesn't, it's like kind of like you're building an arch, and then chapter 11 is the capstone where it all fits together. Now you see the whole thing. And unless you see the whole arch, unless you put the capstone in place, it really doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It looks like something, and it's easy to, to take things out of context and, and confuse. So I want to, so I feel like I need, you need to at least take the first 11 chapters together, and actually some of the, some of the, the ideas that are, he picks up in the first 11 chapters, he expands on that and talks about the implications and he goes back and continues the idea in, in chapter 15 and then closes off in chapter 16 with some final admonitions and, and greetings and things. So, first question, who's the letter written to? They say, well, it's written to the church in Rome, All right. So, I knew that. Well, tell me something more about the church in Rome. Let's, start, let's look at Romans chapter 1. And all the churches in the New Testament were different. Each one was different. Each one had a different personality. Each one had different problems. Some of them were doing great. Some were doing terrible. It's kind of like if you go to the doctors, 
Sometimes some people get a little pat on the back. Keep it up. Good work. Uh, you know, just just uh, keep getting your exercise. You're, you're doing great. And other ones, they, they want to check you into the emergency room for triple bypass surgery immediately. So this is kind of like the way, the way it is with the different churches in the Bible is like that. So what kind of church was the church in Rome? Uh, in chapter 1, Starting in verse 8. So think about this. What was the church in Rome like? First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all, for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son. Without ceasing, I make mention of you always in my prayers, making requests that by some means, now at last, I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gifts so that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith both of you and of me. Romans 15, he goes back and talks about this idea about how I really want to go there. I've been prohibited from getting there. And I'm planning to make a trip to Spain in the future from Jerusalem. And I hope to stop on the way there. So, so what do we learn? Paul has at this at the time he's writing this letter, Paul's never been to the Roman church. He's heard about it. It has a reputation, but he's never been there. So Paul didn't start the church in, in Rome. Uh, who did start it? I don't know. I mean, it says in Acts chapter two that there were some some of the people who were there were visitors from Rome. So maybe they started. It talks about in, in Acts 18 that Priscilla and Aquila had been in Rome. And then Paul met up with them later, I think, in Corinth. So I don't know who started the church, but somebody did. And the church seems to be doing fairly well for for a few reasons. He said, I thank God for your faith, which is spoken of throughout the whole world. He's saying the church in Rome is renowned for its faith throughout the world. Now think about 1 Corinthians. Is that the way Paul starts off 1 Corinthians? Or or some of the churches in Asia that Jesus is addressing, is that how he starts his dialogue with them? Wow, I I hope, I want to visit you. I, I'm going to be really encouraged when I visit you. You guys, are, your faith is known throughout the whole world. No, I mean, there, I, there, there are few churches that come off this good in Scripture. And then you read through the whole letter, You think if there's anything bad that Paul has to say, he's going to bring it out. He certainly did that with the church in Corinth, but but there's there really there's there's no there's nothing significant. There's some general admonitions and some general warnings, but there's no indication of any of any serious problems that are there. Uh, So. Paul, and some people think Paul was writing this from, from Corinth. Uh, there's, I think there's good evidence for that in, in Romans 16, in the last chapter. He's the people that he's mentioning there. One of the things he mentions is Erastus, the treasurer of the city or the director of public works uh, of, of the city. He just, he just says of the city. He doesn't even tell you which city it is. He, he assumes that they know who he's talking about. Erastus is mentioned in, in Acts and in uh, in Second Timothy as well, and I was visit- I was in Corinth many years ago, and there's a pavement in Corinth, very famous, and it says it's 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 in the ground and it's engraved in the pavement, laid uh, by Erastus at his personal expense on being 
appointed the you know director of public works. He's basically in charge of the buildings there. So uh, you know, and uh, so it's very very interesting that uh, that seems to be the same Erastus that's talked about in scripture. That uh, so uh, you know, the assumption is for that and for other reasons that Paul was likely in Corinth. And we know from the book of Acts, Paul spent a year and a half in Corinth on a second missionary journey. He spent three months, more months in that area on his third journey. Uh, that, that these are things we know of for sure. So, and we know in Acts twenty-eight, Paul in chains ends up in Rome for the first time. So we know that somewhere in there, before the end of the book of Acts, Paul is writing this. Maybe very well, he's writing it from from Corinth. That makes makes a lot of sense. Which is another Corinth is another Gentile church. As as uh, you know, it says in First uh, Corinthians twelve, he, he's he's addressing them as very clearly that's that's a Gentile church. Also in Romans fifteen, think about this. Romans fifteen verse fourteen, what he what Paul says. He says, "Now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another." So, what does that tell you about Paul's view of the church in Corinth? Now, I've heard people use this this scripture and apply it to all Christians everywhere of all time. You know, we're all we're all competent to to counsel one another. We're all competent to admonish one another. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think he says, "You guys are full of goodness and 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 competence." It's not that as soon as somebody gets baptized and they're, they're drawing themselves off that they're prepared to to give advice to to people who are much older. That's not what he's talking about here. Okay, so. So, you're full of knowledge and goodness and competent to instruct one. He's an apostle who's saying this. He says, you know, within the church, you have the resources to counsel one another. You're, you're, this is a mature church. I mean, contrast this, and then, and then later on in Romans 16, about the future. There's the, the church also has a bright future. In Romans 16, verses 19 and 20, he says, your obedience has become known to all. Therefore, I am glad on your behalf. I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. I mean, contrast that with what he's saying there to what he said in Acts 20 to the Ephesian elders. He said, after I take off, Savage wolves are going to come in, not sparing the flock, rising up from even from among your own number. So this is so he's saying the things are going to get even better for them, and their obedience is known all over. So as I mentioned, think about other churches in the Bible: First, First Corinthians, and division, false teaching, uh, uh, incest, immorality. Uh, 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 major false teaching about. Fundamental Christian doctrine like resurrection of the flesh. Or Galatians, where the Judaizers are coming in and trying to bind the law of Moses on the believers. Or 1 John, where there are Gnostic-type influences coming into the church. People questioning that Jesus came in the flesh. Or Revelation 2 and 3, churches that have lost their first love, that are lukewarm or have rampant immorality where God, Jesus is threatening to take their lampstand away from the presence of God. Now, so first thing, 
this this is a strong church that is doing well. That's that's among at, at this point in time among the, the the most faithful churches in all of Scripture, even though Paul's never been there. Second point to realize about the church here, this is an overwhelmingly Gentile church, and that will become significant as we continue this to figure out who is this written to. Romans 1.13, Paul says, Now I do not want you to be unaware, brethren. I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now that I might have some fruit among you just as among the other Gentiles. Okay? Paul's apostle, the Gentiles, I want to have fruit among you just like among the other Gentiles. Romans 11.13, I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. It's writing of the church. I realize there are, and then if you read further on in the discussion, you think about what he's saying, is this addressed to Jews or Gentiles? It's pretty obvious in context of the discussion. In Romans 15, Paul gives three prophecies in a row about the Gentiles from the Old Testament. And then he applies them to the church in Rome about the hope that the Gentiles would have. He applies those prophecies about the Gentiles to the church. So it's obvious he's writing to a primarily Gentile audience. Now there may be a few Jews that are in the church. Priscilla and Aquila are mentioned in Acts 13, Andronicus and Junius. Uh, sorry, in, uh, in, in Romans 16, Andronicus and Junius, he says, are his fellow countrymen. So there are a few people who may be Jewish, but overwhelmingly Gentile audience, and he treats the church as if they're all Gentiles in, in the letter. Okay, now this, this is, this is going to be a mind-bender for some people here, but I want you to think about this, what, what I'm about to say. Although this is an overwhelmingly Gentile church, they knew the Jewish scriptures better than anybody does today. Okay, they knew the Jewish scriptures cold. All right? And I explained this to somebody. You know, the, the Gentile churches, 1 Peter, 1 Corinthians, and here Romans, they knew the Old Testament really, really well. And, and, and the guy I was talking to, it was just completely flabbergasted. He said, well, that, that doesn't make any sense. Why would that be? Why would Gentiles know the, the Jewish scriptures really well? And I said, well, here, here are the examples. Let me, let me make my case here. In Romans, writing to a Gentile church, Paul is quoting from that I counted at least 15 different books of the New Testament. Four of the five books of the Law of Moses, the major prophets, Isaiah multiple times, Jeremiah, the minor prophets, Hosea, Habakkuk, Joel, Malachi, the Psalms multiple times, Proverbs, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, Job. He's quoting from all over the Old Testament. And in his letter, he didn't stop and say, you know, this is, this is from the last part of Job here, and this is from, uh, this is from uh, you know, Psalm 69 here. He didn't do that. He just let it rip. He just, he just, he just was, was giving one scripture after another quoting from the scriptures, most of the time, not even saying where it was from, not even saying what book it was from. He just assumed 
but you knew where it was from. Okay? He was backing up his points with scriptures. Question. How many quotes does Paul have in Romans from any of the four Gospels? I counted zero. Okay, zero. What does that tell you? Now, what it tells me is not that the Gospels are not important. It tells me they probably weren't in circulation yet at the time he's writing this, that that's all they had. That was their Bible. The detail that Paul goes into, and he assumes that they know what he's talking about. He mentions not only the scriptures that he quotes, but also the allusions that he gives. He talks about the potter and the clay. He talks about Satan being crushed under their feet. It's not a quote. It's a reference to what it says in Genesis 3. He talks about being living sacrifices. It's an allusion to the whole sacrificial system. Listen to who he refers to in Romans. Paul, writing to a group of Gentiles. Adam, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Rebekah, Esau, Elijah, Moses, Pharaoh, and David. He assumes that they knew who all these people are. He refers to the law of Moses, including the Ten Commandments, to circumcision, to the covenants, plural, the temple service, and the sacrifice. And I like the way he makes one of his points here. He says, after all, Abraham was declared righteous before he was circumcised. So, Abraham's declared righteous in Genesis 15. He's circumcised in Genesis 17. Not only do they know the details, but they know the order of the details. Okay? Romans 7.1. Think about this in light of what I just said here. Romans 7.1. He says, he's speaking to the church, church in Rome. He says, Do you know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. I mean, he assumed that these guys knew the law of Moses. He was speaking to Gentiles who understood the law of Moses. As I mentioned, this kind of blows the mind of, of a lot of Christians. This doesn't fit. Why would a Gentile church know the Old Testament this well? Okay. Now, if it, whether it fits with your understanding or not, this is undeniable. It's undeniable that they did. Okay. And we saw this in 1 Corinthians. We saw it in, 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 in 1 Peter. I remember the line that says, uh, don't, after all, don't muzzle the ox while it's treading out, treading out the grain. That's a really obscure passage from Deuteronomy that he assumes that they're familiar with. Paul assumes that. Uh, now some Christians wonder, well, you know, how would they know the Old Testament? They're Gentiles. They probably don't even know Hebrew. How in the world would they know all this stuff? Well, I think that the, the, the answer to that is hidden in the text here. In Romans 14, verses 12 to 13. Let's turn there. Think about this. Sorry. Romans 15, 12 and 13. It says, after he quotes two Old Testament passages about Gentiles Romans 15 12 and again Isaiah says there shall be a root of Jesse and he he who shall rise over the Gentiles in him the Gentiles shall hope 
Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So what's the what's the what's the point he's taking out of scripture from Isaiah? It's about hope. Gentiles will have hope. And he says, I and, and may you have that hope now too. Take a look at the Masoretic text at Isaiah chapter eleven, verse ten. It says nothing about hope in there. This is from the Septuagint. This is the Greek translation of the scriptures. Not only is hope in there, but every single word. This is a word-for-word, letter-for-letter quote from the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament. What does that tell me? Paul's reading the Septuagint. He assumes the Romans are, and why shouldn't they be? They can read Greek. It's the same language that his list letters in. Okay? So why do we use this strange version in, in our house church? It's one more example. Paul assumes that whoever he's speaking to is reading the Septuagint. That's the, his whole point is based on something you can't find in the Masoretic text. It was translation 200 years before the time of Christ and put the scriptures in a language everyone could understand. There are other examples too. I'll put those in, in the notes. To, 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 but I think you get the idea. So, Gentile church, they know the Septuagint, they know the Old Testament really well and uh, and what does that tell me about the church they, no quotes from the gospels well this was the this was the bible of the church in the beginning this was it this was their scriptures and this is what they studied this is what they meditated on this is what they taught out of before there were any gospels now I want you to try to put yourself in their shoes right now, or perhaps their, their sandals, since they didn't have shoes back then. Think about this. You're Gentile. You're in the church in Rome. In a Gentile church, strong church. And you know the you've been studying the Scriptures, the Old Testament. That's all you've got. That's your Scriptures. That's your Bible. Okay? You believe that it's inspired by God. You believe all the stories in there. And you believe that Jesus has fulfilled this. And you look down the road and you see a synagogue. And those people are reading the same book you're reading. They believe in the same God you worship. They believe in Moses and the prophets and Abraham and everything else, but they don't believe in Jesus. What's with that? Okay, you're reading their book, you believing it, but but they don't believe in Jesus. You're you're com- there's a complete disconnect here somewhere. What's the obvious question that comes to your mind? What happened to them? What's with this? We're reading the same book. We're worshiping the same God. We all believe it. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the prophets, and the Psalms, and David. But they're totally different than we are. They're living by a different set of rules. They're following these laws. And, they, and they, they, they're rejecting Jesus. What happened to them? That'd be the question I would be asking. And I believe this is the question they were asking. Because this is the question Paul answers in Romans. Romans chapter 1 to 11. This is the question that Paul is wrestling with. He's not explaining the gospel to them. They understand the gospel. 
He's, he's answering this question. And how do I know that? Well, let's turn to the conclusion of the argument, the capstone, in Romans chapter 11. What happened to the Jews? How come, how come we're the ones, the Gentiles, that are believing all this stuff? What's with that? Let's just take, take a little pause here, a little warm-up. In, in, in Romans chapter 10 and verse 1, think about what Paul is saying here. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved, for I bear witness that they have great zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So Paul's saying, I wish they were saved. I wish they were saved. But they're not. And he goes on and explains why they aren't saved. Because they're following the law. It's not the righteousness by faith in Jesus that they had to have. Romans chapter 10 and verse 19. But I say, did not uh, did Israel not know? First, Moses said, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will remove move you to anger by a foolish nation. But Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was manifested to those who did not ask for me. But to Israel, he says, all day long I have stretched out my hand to a disobedient and contrary people. This is the story of two people. The Gentiles who believe and the Jews who largely rejected Jesus. It's the story of two people. In Romans chapter 11, Paul really concludes the argument. We talked about this last time with this powerful parable of the olive tree. Romans chapter 11 and verse 16, If the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. If some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them, and with them became partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said. Because of unbelief they were broken off and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore consider the goodness and severity of God. On those who fell, severity. But towards you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God's able to graft them in again. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is by nature wild, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, who are the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? Uh, Says the picture. The olive tree, it's the kingdom of God. It's the whole story from Genesis through through the prophets and Moses and everything else. That's the tree. And, and, and this is a story of two sets of branches. There are the 
natural branches on that tree, those who were the Jews who didn't believe, who were broken off because of unbelief. And then the other group is the rest of us, which are the, 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 the wild olive trees where branches were, bro- were, were grafted into the original tree. And I guess we're close enough that it still works. Just like when you're grafting two different kinds of trees together, if they're close enough, it works. So that's the picture. It's the, the, the branches that were grafted in, one group of people, the Gentile believers, and the branches that were broken off, the Jews who did not have faith in Jesus. That's what Romans chapter 1, and 10, 1 to 10 is building up to. Okay, this is where you are. You're the wild branches that have been grafted in. They're the native branches that were broken off. Okay, that's it. And then, and then in, in chapter 12 and, and beyond, he talks about the, the conclusions and, and the results of all this. Now, I wanna, we're going to take a look at the, at the specific chapters in, in a few minutes here, but some key terms in, in Romans. Law, and law is one, and works is another in this book. There's, there's several significant terms, but those are, those are two gigantic ones. And uh, unfortunately, or fortunately, it's just the way it is, Paul doesn't always use the same term in the same sense. He'll use the term in more than one sense, and sometimes they'll be in the same sentence, so it's obvious that he's, he's, he's splitting off into another sense. Generally, in this letter, but not always, when he says law, it's referring to the law of Moses. All right? Romans 2.17, Indeed, you who are a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God. This is obviously referring to the law of Moses. Uh, Romans 7.7, 7, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known unless, covetousness unless the law said, you shall not covet. So this is obviously referring to the law of Moses. Most of the references in Romans are talking about when it says law, the law of Moses. On the other hand, there's some other places from context where it's clear that he's not talking about the law of Moses. He says, when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves. So the last law is obviously, he's, he's changing the meaning of law. He's talking about law of Moses, law of Moses, law of Moses. And he says, well, you're kind of coming, coming like a law unto yourselves. He's using the word differently there in uh, Romans 2, 14 and 15. Uh, Romans 3.27 Where is boasting that is excluded by what law of works? No, but by the law of faith. So this is another law he's talking about. There's the law of Moses and there's the law of faith. He's referring to that as a law. As similar in in Romans 8.2 he says For the law of the spirit of life in Jesus Christ has made me free from the law of sin and death. So he said two different laws that are going on. There's the law of Christ, and then there's the law of sin and death, which is referring to the law of Moses. So whenever you run into the word law, you have to ask yourself the question, which is it referring to the law of Moses or something else? Basic, basic uh, uh, question here. Also works. This is a controversial word in the Christian world. Uh, The word works is a Greek word that's translated works or deed or actions. Some places it's referring to the works of the law of Moses. Circumcision, uh, you know, all the other things associated with that. Romans 3.20, this is from the ESV. 
For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Works of the law. So that in that case, works is referring to works of the law of Moses. Uh, and, and I think in the K, uh, NKGV it says deeds of the law, but it's the same word. Uh, Romans 3.28 ESV, we hold that, no, that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So that's obviously works of the law of Moses. Um, on the other hand, there are places where the word works or deeds is used in a more general sense. Uh, Romans 2 in the ESV, it says, He will render to each one according to his works. Okay, now this is, this is, this is, this is Martin Luther's favorite book of the Bible, just completely torpedoes his whole theology in one line. He says, God does, God's not showing favoritism. He's going to treat the Jews and the Gentiles the same. He's going to judge all of them according to their works. That's what he says. Uh, and this is, I mean, this is nothing more than what Jesus is saying. In Revelation 20, this, uh, and I'm sorry, Revelation 21, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming quickly. My reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. Judgment by works, meaning by what we do, not by, by there by the works of the law of Moses. Uh, Revelation 20, The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his work. So... This is this is this is what the scriptures teach. Uh, if it doesn't agree with uh, Martin Luther's theology, then uh, uh, make your choice. Okay, which one are you going to follow here? Uh, <clears throat> so, law works. Important important concepts. Now let's take a look at the argument made by Paul, which concludes in this parable of the olive tree. The broken off branches and the grafted in branches. Everything is building up to that. Uh, it's about the two groups of people. Romans 1 and 2. And, and go back and study this. I'm just going to give a, a quick summary of what the points Paul is making to arrive at his conclusion. Romans 1 and 2, he's saying God doesn't play favorites. He treats everybody the same. All right? He treats both groups the same. He treats the Jews and the Gentiles. The passage that we just read from Romans 2, that's what he's talking about. God treats everybody the same. We're all going to be judged based on our works, based on what we're doing, how we're living our life. Jews and Gentiles, God doesn't show favorites. If you're seeking glory and honor and mortality... Or if you're living for the flesh and, and you're going to face destruction. So that's basically, that's what he's saying. Uh, no favoritism from God. Whether you're a Jew or a Greek, you're going to get justice. Same justice from God. Romans 3, 1 to 20. Okay, now, and go back and read this on your own. What's the point? Paul is trying to make in the argument. Paul is making the argument. Paul makes the argument that look, the Gentiles are living sinful lives. Uh, they're 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 condemned by God. And then the other point he's trying to make Romans three one to twenty. He's saying the Jews are too. He's saying the Jews are sinful. And I'll prove it to you from the Jewish scriptures, which was written to them. 
He's saying that uh, uh, the Jews didn't follow the commands of God and all the no one is righteous scriptures. Paul concludes after, after giving those scriptures, the conclusion he draws in Romans 3.19, he says, well, now we know that whatever the law says, and this is all these, the scriptures he's quoting about, about your, your wicked, your evil, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world be guilty before God. So he's saying, look, I'm even, I'll prove you from the Jewish scriptures that the Jews, the Jews were not righteous. Most of them were, were not living according to the law. So God's not playing favorites. Uh, but he says, he says, you know, while God doesn't play favorites, the Jews have some advantages. And he says the main advantage that the Jews have, they have the oracles of God. Okay, they have the word of God. They, they, they have that. Uh, so, so they're, they're they're in an advantageous position, but God's going to judge everybody the same based on, on how they live. And both the Jews and the Gentiles turn away from God and were wicked. Uh, Romans 3, 21-31. Both the Jews and the Gentiles will be justified by faith apart from the law of Moses. He's dealing with both groups of branches. Okay, There's one way of salvation... It's open to both of them. That's the only way. Romans 3.28 Therefore we conclude a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? He's not all, is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, the Gentiles also, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. So say, no matter which group of branches you're in, there's only one way you're going to be justified. Talking about these two groups of people. Romans chapter 4. He goes back to Abraham, the forefather of all of the Jews, and he makes the point, he was righteous before he was circumcised, circumcision representing the law of Moses here, following the whole law. And he says, just to show you that righteousness comes apart from circumcision, can come apart from circumcision. And the true descendants of Abraham are those who have the faith of Abraham. So we Gentiles, if we have the faith of Abraham, we can be part of the family. We can be grafted back into the tree. And, and after all, it was Abraham was told he'd be the father of many nations, not just the Jews. Romans 5-7 to talks about death and life. Death came to the whole world through one man, Adam, Jews and Gentiles, Life comes to the whole world through one man, Jesus Christ. And it's through his death. It's through his death that the Jews and Gentiles all can be reconciled to God. However, we have to die with him if we want to participate in this. We have to die and be buried with him in baptism. We have to die to the sins of the flesh. So Romans 5, 6, and 7, where we have died with him, we're no longer slaves to sin. If we died with Christ, we shall live with him. I didn't make, manage to make it on the Romans road either. Um, okay, we're, we were slaves to sin, we're now slaves of God. Then he talks about how death, this is all the discussion about life and death, death was necessary Death severs a marriage. 
You're married until death do you part. Death severs a marriage, and it says the same thing with the law. The death, it, the death is associated with the end of the law. Okay, uh, like the like a last will and testament that goes into effect upon a death. So it's saying that the that the old law was put to death through Christ, and we're now under a new covenant. We, we're we're now married uh, to Christ, essentially. We're married to another. Romans 8 talks about how we have been freed from the law of Moses by what Jesus did. It says that uh, God did this by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, He condemns sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk according to the flesh, not according who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And then he says that we are all sons of God through the Spirit. Whether we're uh, from Jewish background or not, we can all become sons of God. We can all become part of the family of God. Romans 9 is about election and predestination. And what you have to understand is he's not talking about election and predestination. It's not, well okay, God's arbitrarily decided, I'm going to save this guy, this guy, and this guy, and condemn these other people, and, 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 and you know, he's just arbitrarily going to pick it out. It's an election of a class of people. God's plan from the beginning was to save the elect. The elect are those who choose to have faith. And that's what he's saying in Romans chapter 11. He says, even the Jews who are broken off, if they come to faith, they can be grafted back in again. So you get to choose if you want to be part of the elect. God had predestined that this would be the plan, not that certain individuals would be saved, but that, but that many of the people who were the physical descendants wouldn't make it and that other people would. And this is, this is uh, hidden throughout the scriptures, this theme. So there's the idea of, of predestination, election. It's an election of a class of people. It doesn't eliminate free will. We get to choose if we want to be part of, of the class. And the overall plan was predestined that this elect class of people would be saved in Romans chapter 9. Uh, and then we're, we're up to Romans chapter 10 and, and Romans Romans 11, which we, uh, we talked about before. So in Romans 11, the conclusion of the argument Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. So this is a discussion about the two classes of people, the broken off branches and the grafted in branches. You say, well, what does this have to do with us? You know, why is this, how did this become the most important book in the Bible? This, what? what what does this have to do with my life? Well, actually, there are some significant consequences of understanding this that Paul brings out in, in Romans chapter 12 and after that. He says, all right, we are the continuation of God's plan. We're the continuation of that legacy. All the nourishment, all the sap from the tree is flowing up and is now flowing into us who have been grafted into this tree. We are the continuation of the legacy of God's people, God's kingdom, and God's plan. Okay, So it says, therefore, we need to be offering ourselves. We are the fulfillment 
of the of the service of of the sacrificial system and the worship. We're we're the continuation of that, but it's a spiritual nature. We're offering our ourselves as living sacrifices, not animal sacrifices anymore. And then we talked about that last time. And all the things to be a living sacrifice. It talks about humility, love, submission, denying the flesh, being considerate, sharing with others. If our enemies are hungry, we feed them. Submitting to the governing authorities. Don't put stumbling blocks in the paths of our brothers. Okay, we're looking out for each other. We're seeking to be unified. Not judging other Christians. Okay? He says, don't, who are you to judge somebody else's servant? We need, to, we need to please God and not be picking and pecking at, at each other and judging each other on, on, on small things. Um, if somebody's in sin, that's another story. Striving for unity and working. So, so the whole idea, the, the, one of the implications of understanding this, this, this the story about the two groups of branches is appreciating we need, we're the continuation of this, we need to be offering ourselves as living sacrifices. Another implication which I mentioned before is, as Paul points out in, in, uh, here in, in Romans chapter 11, he says, Continue the kind, consider the kindness and sternness of God. Kindness that he grafted us in. But he broke the other branches off. If you don't continue in his kindness, you will be broken off as well. This tells us something about who God is and who we are and what we need to be. Another thing I just noticed recently, and I don't know if this has any bearing on us at all, but this is one of the applications that he makes in Romans 15. So think about this. Romans chapter 15 In verse 25, Now I am going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints, for it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. It pleased them indeed, and they are their debtors. For if the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister to them in material things. I mean, this is an interesting application that he makes. It's, I'm, I'm going to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be taking gifts from the Gentile churches to the saints in Jerusalem. Because after all, we're benefiting from the spiritual things that we got from them from the bottom of the tree. So we should be providing out of gratitude to the Jews. Now, they're giving it to the, the Jewish believers. And he, says, he says, we owe a debt of, of gratitude to the Jews. Now, the irony to me in all of this is, okay, Martin Luther said Romans is, is the ultimate book in the Bible. Martin Luther was notoriously anti-Semitic. He was notoriously anti-Semitic, and that's, that's hidden from a lot of people's view today who, like to, who, who, who hold him up in high regard. But Paul said, we owe a debt to the Jews. We owe, we owe a spiritual debt to the Jews, and so we should manifest that materially. We should sacrifice to give to them. And, and so what's and what's the legacy of Martin Luther, of Martin Luther's anti-Semitism? Add a few hundred years, and, and you and you see what you see what happened. To that. It's a terrible thing. Uh, so 
But this whole idea that that we are debtors, we need to have a grateful attitude. It's the same thing towards your parents. It says, you know, consider what your parents gave you. You need to be grateful and give back to them. Consider the legacy that the Jews have given to us. We need to have generous hearts and be willing to give back to them. And then one uh, last thing uh, is in Romans chapter 15. We'll close with this. Perhaps you can see this in a new light. Paul quotes from one of the Psalms, and he says in uh, verse 3, Romans 15, 3, Even Christ did not please himself, for it is written, The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. What's he talking about? He's talking about the Old Testament. He said, this is the, this is the sap, this is the root, this is what's feeding us. He says, all these things that were written before, they're written for us. We're grafted in branches, but we're taking advantage of that. And you can see this in Romans, that this is what the church did. They knew the Hebrew Scriptures really well in the beginning. Lesson for us. So I just just a quick overview of Romans. I encourage you to not trust anything I just told you, but to go back like the Bereans did and see if what I presented to you is faithful to the Scriptures. Or am I taking what Paul said out of context? I believe this is a great book with practical lessons for us, but we have to rest, rest it back from the Protestants who corrupted it. Amen.